Okay, so we come to the uh, concluding section of uh, our series on, on 1 Thessalonians uh, 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 on Thessalonians this evening. Um, I wonder, what does the word family suggest to you? Um, you're, probably your thoughts immediately turn to parents, siblings, spouse, children. And of course, they're all very real people. And they're not just ordinary people, are they? Um, because you're related to them and they're related to you. So at the heart of family, you have the idea of relationships. And again, they're not just ordinary relationships. I mean, we have relationships with all sorts of people. But your relationships uh, with family members within the family are special relationships, aren't they? That they should be very good relationships. They should be relationships of a certain quality. Um, you know, the very fact that we speak of dysfunctional families means that there is, there is an ideal, there is something that should be true, uh, should be true within, within a family. Now, we're going to look at this last section of, of 1 Thessalonians. It's uh, chapter 5, verses 12 to 28. And it's very noticeable uh, in that relatively short passage, long for me, but relatively short <laughs> passage, uh, Paul uses the word brothers five times. So the emphasis really is very strongly focused on uh, the church as being a brotherhood or a family. Um, as believers in Christ, we are related to one another in a, a special way, not just in a casual way, not in the way that you are to your next-door neighbour or your, your workmates. Uh, it's a special relationship, a deeper relationship. Now, Chris suggested that the title for, the, for this evening could be Concluding Remarks, and I've taken the liberty of, of changing that slightly. Um, it is the last section of, of, the, uh, of the letter, so I've no problem with the word concluding, but I'm not so sure about the word remarks, because a, a remark is a, a casual or, or brief expression of a thought or opinion. And it seems to me that Paul is doing much more than that here. He's very definitely uh, asking the Thessalonian brothers to do things rather than just uh, making a passing remark or two. So I've changed the title to concluding requests. Um, John Stott said uh, in relation to this passage, this fact of our mutual relationships profoundly affects our mutual behaviour. And the sense here is that since they're brothers, since, since we're brothers and sisters, Paul is asking them to do things that should flow from their mutual family relationship in Christ. Now, although it's, um, it's not too long a passage, there is a, an awful lot crammed into it. So um, we're really only going to be able to take something of a, an overview, overview here. It, it grieves me to sort of have to <laughs> leave so much out, but um, time, time is, is short. So we're going to um, look at it under six headings, really looking at six requests uh, that Paul is making throughout the passage. So the first, uh, first heading is what Paul requests them to do for their leaders. Uh, and we see that in verses 12 and 13. Uh, he wrote, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labour among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, Paul doesn't use the term elder or overseer or anything like that here but it is very evident isn't it that he has church leaders in mind uh, and before we think about what Paul requests them to do for their leaders I just want to notice three things that, that we see about leaders here um, firstly he says that they labour 
among you. So being a church leader isn't a nominal titular position. It's not a, a sinecure. It, it, in, it involves work. And, and the Greek word that Paul has used here is a word that is usually used of manual occupations. It's a word uh, that, that speaks of toil. It speaks of striving. It's, it speaks of struggle. So church leaders have a hard job to do. And if they, if they are functioning properly as leaders, it will be hard work. So church leadership involves hard work. Notice too that Paul says that they labour among you. So church leaders are one of us. They're among us. Um, They're not not separate. They don't work from a distance. Uh, They work from within. They are among us. And and so what they do is is primarily, primarily among us rather than elsewhere. Third thing that uh, he says here about, um, oh no, just, be, just before um, mo- moving on, um, yes, yeah, so, so they, they work among us. Then secondly, we see that they are over you in the Lord. Now those words, over you, uh, they, they certainly suggest leadership, don't they? Uh, even authority. Um, could be taken to imply superiority or or dominance if that was all that he said but you see it's qualified by those words in the Lord so they lead in the way that Jesus leads and that's by by serving and by caring Um, within the kingdom of God things are very topsy-turvy aren't they the world's ways are very much inverted so in the world, leaders tend to be up there, um, dominating. But Jesus led by serving. He, he led by, by, by caring and serving. And so it is that church leaders uh, should lead in that way. Uh, Leon Morris said uh, of this that while its tone is brotherly, it is big brotherly. Um, I certainly don't think that by big brotherly uh, he meant it in a, a menacing Orwellian sense. Uh, what I think he was saying was he, he really meant it in the sense of a, an elder brother using his, his strength and his experience to care for his younger siblings. And so uh, church leaders have that responsibility to, to care for uh, the church uh, as family members. Thirdly, uh, Paul says that they admonish you. And that word admonish, it really means to to warn or or reprove or or correct or maybe even if necessary discipline. But again, we mustn't get the impression that there's anything harsh about that. Um, I think you get the feel for for the sense of of what's meant uh, from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians Uh, Chapter 4, verse 13, he said there, I do not write these things to to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And there you get the sense of admonishing as being a loving father, giving well-meant, well-intentioned correction, guidance, and so on. So church leaders shouldn't put us to shame but they should encourage us and and gently correct uh, as it's required. So that's what church leaders should be like. What does Paul require of the Thessalonian believers uh, regarding those leaders who who labour among them and are over them in the Lord and admonish them? Well, in the world, um, attitudes towards leaders tend to be polarised, don't they? They go to one extreme or the other on the one hand there can be a tendency to put leaders on pedestals and and venerate them Uh, you think of the scenes of mass adoration that can accompany papal visits and so on that that's putting leaders being way way up there above us mere mortals that there's something 
fantastic, something to be marvelled at. That's one extreme. But on the other hand, there can be a tendency to despise leaders, uh, to, to mock them, to want to bring them down. Uh, you, you see it in, in the political arena, don't you, when people fall on their swords. I, I won't um, mention any names, but there can be that kind of sense of glee that, that, that they've tumbled down or that they thought they were so important, but they've been brought down to nothing. And so you've got those two extremes that are very commonplace in, in the world, in attitudes to, towards leaders. But Paul says... We ask you, brothers, to respect them. And that means to to appreciate them, acknowledge them, value them. And then he goes on to say, uh, he asks them to esteem them very highly in love. So we have this combination, don't we, of, of appreciation and affection. And notice this isn't because of well, their personality, not because of any sort of celebrity or, or, or status or, or even because of the office. No, Paul says they are to do that because of their work, because of that very hard work that they do among us and for us. We're to appreciate and esteem them because of what they do and how hard they work at it. And then Paul also says, uh, be at peace among yourselves. Now, I mean, obviously, brothers and sisters in Christ should be at peace uh, among, the, among themselves. But uh, in this context, I suspect that the primary idea is that we are to be at peace with our leaders. Um, we're not to resent them. We're not to undermine them. There's not to be a, a them and us situation. You know, as we saw, leaders are one of us. That they're not a race apart. So there's not to be a, a one, a, a them and us kind of uh, situation uh, at, at work. No, uh, if we respect our leaders and if we esteem them very highly in love, then there will be peace among us. We're moving on then to Paul's next request. Uh, let's see what Paul requests them to do for one another. Uh, that's in verses 14 to 15, where he says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So verse 12 began with Paul saying, We ask you, brothers... And now he says, and we urge you, brothers. So it's another request, but perhaps a bit more urgent, perhaps a, a bit more difficult than respecting leaders. But it's, uh, it, it must be done. He, he urges them. Now, the first thing that's striking here is that for all that the Thessalonian believers uh, had been remarkably changed through coming to faith in Christ, Paul was very realistic about the Thessalonian church. He recognised that it was a real mixed bag. It included all sorts of people with all sorts of uh, faults and failings. You know, we see that some were idle, uh, that they'd given up work because they were convinced that Christ's return was imminent. Uh, others were faint-hearted, we saw in, in chapter 4 that some were worried about their brothers and sisters uh, in Christ who had died before Christ had returned. And they were worried for them, that, that they were concerned that somehow they were missing out. Maybe it was that, that they'd even missed out on salvation. Uh, and maybe they were worried for themselves. You know, what will happen to us if we die before he returns? So that they, they were faint-hearted, they, they were timid, that they were... They were worried and anxious. And then uh, we see that some were weak. Maybe he's referring uh, to those mentioned back in chapter 4 who were finding sexual self-control difficult. 
they, 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 they were weak. They, 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 they were unable to control themselves. I, I did think that um, when, I, when I was thinking about the faint-hearted and timidity, I was thinking of, of Piglet in Winnie the Pooh. And I thought, oh, but wouldn't it be good if I could get two other Pooh characters for the other two points? And I kind of wondered about Tigger for the lack of self-control. But I, I did struggle... Um, I did struggle with the first one, so if any of you've got any good ideas, then you can you can tell me afterwards. Um, but uh, yeah, but definitely Piglet's a good one for, uh, for, for being faint-hearted, for being for being timid. So it's the case, isn't it, that we too are a real mixed bag, and all churches are a mixed bag. It's true of all churches. Uh, you know, although we have new life in Christ, and although a, a, a very radical change has, has begun in us, the, the fact remains that we are each a work in progress. And a, as a family, as the body of Christ, we are a work in process. Uh, in, in progress. So... It's important that, that we recognise that. Um, I think if, if we have too idealised a view of what the church is like now, we will find that we, we, that we come up against a lot of disappointments and frustrations. We can easily become dis disillusioned. Um, as we view the church, we really do need to be thinking about what should I be doing rather than what should I... I should be uh, expecting to to get from it. If we look look to the church to meet all of our needs, we'll be let down and we'll be disillusioned. We need to be realistic about about the situation. You remember jo uh, John F. Kennedy in his inaugural address in uh, back in 1961. I remember it well. <laughs> but you remember he said, "And so, my fellow Americans." Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And I would say that with a tweak, the same is good advice for us as believers in Christ. You know, so my fellow Christians, ask not what your church can do for you, ask what you can do for your church. And that's really what we see in what Paul uh, uh, goes on to say, you see, given the fact that the church consists of all sorts of oddbods like you and me, what did Paul urge the brothers to do? Well, he didn't say give up in despair, you know, feel let down by them. Oh, you know, they're, they're not doing this for me. They're, they're letting me down again in, in that way. No, in a nutshell, he urged them to treat one another appropriately by addressing one another's needs. You see, he urged them to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. What he's saying is provide the needy among you with what they need. He's saying don't mutter disapprovingly under your breath about the idle, but give them a loving kick up the backside. He's not, uh, he's not saying... Um, He's saying, don't belittle or ignore the concerns of the timid, but give them encouragement from God's word. Don't leave them to flounder. Give them those who are weak. Don't leave them to flounder and to struggle, but give them the help and the support that they need. And none of that's easy, which is why Paul had to urge them to do it. You know, the fact is that those who are idle, faint-hearted, weak, or whatever it might be, they can be difficult, that they can be demanding, it can be disappointing. And Paul recognises that as he goes on to say, be patient with them all. Be patient with everyone. Be long-suffering. It might be hard work, but don't give up on them. Persevere with them. And after all, when all is said and done, we all let the Lord down, don't we, in, in so many ways. Time and time again, we, we fail. We, we, we let him down. 
Uh, but he's patient with us. He, he's long-suffering with us. And if that's how our Lord is with us, then that's how we must be uh, amongst ourselves. Now, it's very easy to think of um, things like admonishing and encouraging and helping uh, as being things that surely the leaders should do. Uh, and of course, uh, it's right, isn't it? They are all things that the church leaders are to be doing. But remember that Paul urged the brothers to do these things. So we all have a responsibility to be admonishing, to be encouraging, and to be helping one another. And then he goes on to say, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I think the way that's worded really underscores the fact that Paul is requesting the outworking of our relationships within God's family. You see, he's not addressing individuals by saying, don't repay anyone evil for evil. No, he says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. So, so the idea here it is taking responsibility for your brothers and sisters. If someone's talking about retaliating, well, dissuade them. Talk them out of it. Show them that it's not appropriate. It's not acceptable in God's family. When Cain killed Abel, killed his brother Abel, you remember the Lord asked Cain uh, where Abel was. And he replied by saying, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, within the body of Christ, the answer to that really is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible to care, to help, to guide. You are your brother's keeper. And in a spiritual sense, you should know where your brother is. I don't mean physically. I don't mean for a tracking device and say, oh, it's gone Sainsbury's. But you need to know where they are spiritually. How are they? How are they doing? Are they struggling? What help do they need? Uh, we need to recognise that we have a responsibility for one another and in order to be able to, to help and meet needs we need to know the needs don't we so we need to know where our brothers and sisters are now Paul follows that by saying but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone and again you see he's not simply addressing individuals by saying always do good no, it's always seek to do good to one another. The number of times in, in, in the New Testament letters we get this emphasis on one another. It's, it's not just you do good to them. It's a, a mutual, reciprocal thing. Uh, it's the way family members are to treat one another. And so the picture that emerges from all this really is that the church is to aspire to be a community of, of mutual comfort, of mutual encouragement, of forbearance and service. Um, very much ties in with what we were seeing this morning, wasn't it? About, uh, you know, let us stir one another up to love and good works. It's back to this mutual responsibility. We need to encourage one another and help one another. And it's not just you doing it for others, but it's you being prepared to have others do it for you as well. It's one another, it's mutual. Next, uh, what Paul requests them to do together. You see that in verses 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So Paul requests them, well, three simple requests, it seems. Rejoice, pray and give thanks. And ideally, every believer will be joyful, will be prayerful, will be thankful. Pause a moment, go through that. How many boxes do you tick? Um, that, that in and of itself is, is, is challenging, isn't it? But that, that's what we should 
we, that's what we should be like. Paul's requesting more that, that though than that they, they just be individually rejoicing and praying and giving thanks. You see, in this context, I think Paul is requesting them to rejoice and pray and give thanks together as a family of believers. Now, it's not too difficult to rejoice sometimes, is it? But we'd be a very, very poor and sad bunch if we never rejoiced. Well, seven score and seven score now what is it three score and ten years or nowadays it's probably more like four score and ten isn't it but you know just imagine all that length of time never being joyful um we, we can all be joyful sometimes we can all rejoice sometimes uh but this is saying to, to you know he's actually saying re- rejoice uh, always and and Again, we, uh, we're with praying, it's uh, it's easy to pray spasmodically, isn't it? And giving thanks. Well, it's easy to give thanks when things are going well. But you see, Paul's request is much more than that. His request is that we are to be constant in those things. With regard to rejoicing, there's to be constancy because he said rejoice always. Um, same in Philippians 4.4 where... He said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, I don't think that that means that we must always feel happy. Uh, we certainly don't always feel happy. There are lots of things round, going on round about us that make us feel very unhappy. So this isn't a, a requirement that we always feel happy. I think the words uh, of Jesus in John sixteen twenty two perhaps help us to grasp the idea. Um, he said there, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So this was before Jesus went to the cross. He was talking to his disciples. He was telling them that he was about to go away. And by that, he was referring to going to die on the cross. And they were sorrowful. They were horrified at the prospect of Jesus no longer being with them. And he understood their sorrow, but he assured them that their sorrow would turn to joy. Why? Well, that was because he'd see them again once he'd risen from the dead. And once that had happened, he said, well, then no one will take your joy from you. Knowing that Jesus has died for us and risen from the dead is cause for constant joy, so we should always be rejoicing in that knowledge. Come what may, in whatever circumstances, we, we, we have that joy. Um, but, we've had a series uh, over recent weeks, haven't we, that, that Chris has uh, led us through, about fighting for joy. Uh, and we need to remember what we were seeing there. Yes, we have that joy, but we might not experience it. If we allow things to to get in the way and keep us from it. So bear in mind the things that uh, we've heard in in recent weeks. But there's no reason to not be joyful because we have that joy in Christ. No one can take it from us. With regard to praying, uh, again there's to be constancy because he said to pray without ceasing. Um, that obviously doesn't mean we're to pray every minute of every day. We'd be as bad as those that have given up work, wouldn't we, if all we did was pray? Um, it doesn't mean pray every minute of every day. And I say that not only because um, you know, on an individual basis it would be a practical impossibility, but also because, as we've already said, Paul is especially uh, thinking about rejoicing, praying and giving thanks together. And we aren't and cannot always be together, can we? We're not together without ceasing. Uh, our meetings come to an end. We, we go our separate ways. So it can't mean uh, it can't mean literally praying every minute of every day. Rather, I think in saying to pray without ceasing, he meant we're to pray for everything that needs to be prayed for, and to stick at it, and to, to keep at it. 
um, in, in Luke chapter 18, we, we have the account there of Jesus' parable of the persistent widow. And Luke introduces that in verse 1 of Luke 18 by saying, And he told them a parable to the effect that, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And in saying always to pray, he meant to, to never refrain from praying. If there's a need, pray. If there's a cause for concern, pray. No matter how massive it might seem, no matter how trivial it might seem, we need to be sure to pray. Uh, prayer should always be our, our first resort. Um, very often it's our last resort, isn't it? You know, we see a problem, we try and fix it. It doesn't work, we try something else. Something else doesn't work, so we think, oh, we better pray about it. Why didn't we pray in the first place? Prayer should be our first resort. So we, we, we should pray when, whenever there's need to pray and we're not to give up. You know, sometimes answers to prayer take a long time to come, but we, we, we're to stick at it. With regard to giving thanks, again, there's to be constancy because he said to give thanks in all circumstances. And we can do that, can't we? Because we know that God is always working all things together for our good. Um, in Ephesians 5 verses 18 to 21, Paul wrote there, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, another one of those one another's, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you notice there that this giving thanks, it's in the context of addressing one another and submitting to one another. So it's giving thanks together as the family of God. And we're to be doing that always and for everything. So we're to rejoice, pray and give thanks. Why? Well, Paul says this is the will of God. God's will and purpose is that his people should be joyful prayerful and thankful. He hasn't called us to be a bunch of miseries. He hasn't called us to be those who think we can do without him. Uh, he hasn't called us to be ungrateful. Notice Paul's not saying, uh, saying this is God's will so you must jolly well get on and do it. This is God's will, be like it. No, he says it's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So it's his will, but it's for our good, and it's, it's in Christ. It's, it's not just, uh, you know, obviously in Christ we have every reason to rejoice and pray uh, and give thanks, but also in Christ we have the motivation, we have the strength, we have the, the impetus it's by virtue of our being in Christ that we rejoice, pray and give thanks. What Paul requests them to not do, uh, verses 19 to 22, he says, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So we've got some quite brief, punchy statements there. Um, some of them could beg difficult questions and raise controversial issues. And in view of the, the, the limited time that we've got here, and also in view of the fact that the immediate text uh, doesn't uh, give a great deal of information, I'm not going to attempt to address any of those questions or issues. hope you don't feel that's uh, a bit of a cop-out, but there really isn't time to, to look into them in any any depth. Uh, so we'll limit ourselves to, to what seems to me to be clear from the text. Uh, the first thing that Paul requests them to not do is quench the spirit. That word quench, uh, on a hot day like today, 
Uh, it makes you think of a nice, cool, refreshing drink to quench your thirst, doesn't it? But uh, that's not the meaning of the word quench here. You, you can't quench something that, that's far removed from you, can you? So it immediately suggests that when we're together as God's family, well, the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit is among us. And the fact that we can quench the Holy Spirit tells us that his presence among us is in order to do something. It's in order to have an effect upon us. What is that effect? Well, the word that's been translated here as quench it is the word that's used for extinguishing a light or extinguishing a fire. So the Holy Spirit is among us and is like a, a light or, or like a fire. So as, as a light, his action is to enlighten us. Uh, as a fire, his action is to inflame us. That, that's to empower us and, and motivate us. So, so the idea is that he's working in us and among us in order to open our eyes to God's truth and to apply that truth to us and to enable us to work it out. So to quench the spirit would really be to, 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 be to, to resist him. It, it would be uh, by not cooperating with him in what he's doing in us and among us. It, it would be to, to not allow his work to take root in us and progress in us. Well, Paul says we're not to quench the spirit. So when we meet together, we should expect him to do his work in us. We should welcome it and cooperate with him in it. And the more he enlightens us and empowers us, well, the more we'll be able to rejoice and pray and give thanks. And the more we'll be able to love one another, care for one another, uh, and so on. That's all, all the work that he's doing uh, amongst us and, and in us. The second thing that Paul requests them to not do is despise prophecies. Now, when you hear the word prophecy, people tend immediately to think in terms of foretelling, don't they? You're telling the future. This is what's going to happen at some point in the future. And there are instances of such foretelling in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, but in the main, prophecy is forthtelling rather than, than, than foretelling. You know, essentially, a prophet is one who says, thus says the Lord. Uh, a prophet is one who, who declares God's truth. And Old Testament prophets and, uh, and the apostles in the New Testament, well, they declared the truth that they had received. By direct revelation from God. That they spoke God's word. Um, in the early church. You know, although there were still apostles around. Uh, there were also others. Who were either considered to be prophets. Or who claimed to be prophets. And, and many of those were, were very faithfully declaring God's truth. But some were not. And it's really that, that group of non-apostolic prophets that, that Paul has in mind when, when he says about not despising prophecies. The idea is to not treat such prophecies with contempt. He's saying, don't dismiss, out of, dismiss them out of hand. Don't, don't take the attitude... That unless it comes from the mouth of an apostle, I'm not going to take any notice. He said, don't just dismiss it because it didn't come from an apostle. Uh, however, there's a very important but, because he goes on to say, but test everything. So although he's saying, don't rush to dismiss it, he's also saying, don't rush to accept it either. You must first test it to establish whether it's true or not. 
Paul was really telling them to be like the Bereans uh, and examine the scriptures to see if what they had heard was true. Now some might say that such testing and evaluating is, is very clinical and very dry and uh, it seems very un- unspiritual. You know, they'd, they'd say, well, the Holy Spirit's in control. So just go with the flow. Surely to, to, to do all this testing, yeah, that's quenching the Spirit. Just go with the flow. But you see, having said do not quench the Spirit, Paul immediately goes on to say, test everything. So there is no, there's no contradiction there. There is no tension. Testing what we hear is not somehow unspiritual. Testing what we hear is not quenching the Spirit. No, quite the opposite. It's what the Spirit indwelt people are called to do. So, doing that isn't just a matter of, of interest. It isn't only a matter of obedience. It, it isn't just a matter of theological correctness. We're not talking about you know, crossing theological T's and dotting, dotting the I's. Because you see, there's an important purpose in doing that. Paul went on to say, hold fast what is good. Now, the Greek word that's been translated there as good is kalos. And it's a word that was used of, of coins that ring true. So it denotes that which is genuine. Uh, as opposed to that which is counterfeit. So the point of testing what was heard was to find out what was genuine, and it didn't stop there. What they found to be genuine, they were to hold fast. Let go of everything else. That, that can be ignored. But be sure to hold fast what is shown to be genuine. And exactly the same holds true when you listen to preaching today. The preacher should be forth-telling God's truth. But it only has authority insofar as it accords with what the Bible says. So don't blindly accept anything that I'm saying this evening. Uh, Test it. Don't automatically accept what Chris says week by week. Test it. Because it's what the word of God says. It's what the word of God says that is true and reliable and authoritative. Now we're not to do that testing with a a, a critical spirit. Um, it, it's not a. It's, it's not. Um, it's not that we're just to find great delight in finding faults. You know, rush up to the preacher afterwards and say, "Hey, you said this. Well, look at this verse. Ah, got you there." It's not that sort of attitude, not at all. And it's not to be with a, a, a pharisaical looking for uh, a way of escape, a way of avoiding the, the, the impact of what's being said. It's not a way of trying to find a way of, of wriggling out, of heeding and obeying what you hear. It's in order to hold fast what is good, that that which is right and true, we do. So, the third uh, thing that Paul requests them to not do is evil. Um, He expresses that by saying, abstain from every form of evil. And then he speaks of every form of evil, really emphasises the fact, doesn't it, that evil manifests itself in all sorts of ways. We can find no end of ways uh, of doing things which are are evil. and there are some things, some forms of evil, that uh, we probably have no difficulty in abstaining from. You know, there are certain things that we, we've never done, we never will do, it's not a problem. But abstaining from every form of evil, well that's a tough proposition, isn't it? And we can't achieve that in our own strength. And so Paul goes on to pray for them. So... Let's next see what Paul requests for them. Uh, Verses 23 to 24. He said, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now, we don't have time to unpack everything in in that prayer, but we we mustn't uh, gloss over it as though it's just so many polite words. Paul usually has a a bit at the end of most of his letters where he's he's praying for his uh, his readers, and they're often quite similar. But we we mustn't think that he's just done a a copy-and-paste job um, this is a, a, a serious, a serious prayer, and it's a, it's a, it's a big prayer, isn't it? Um, it's a big long-term prayer. You know, we often quite rightly pray for things in the here and now, but this prayer has a, an ultimate quality about it. Yes, he's praying for their sanctification and, and preservation, and, and that's that's ongoing in, in throughout our lives. Uh, I'm sure we each pray for our own sanctification and preservation, and I hope we pray for, pray for one another in the same way. But here, Paul isn't praying for ongoing sanctification and preservation uh, uh, as such in our daily lives. He's got something much bigger, much more ultimate in his sights. He's praying for their complete sanctification and their being wholly blameless. And that won't be realised until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul prays it with full confidence that that is what is going to happen. You know, he adds, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Um, we're in the sort of territory we were in again this morning, weren't we, about, about assurance, about confidence. And the confidence isn't in our, ourselves, it's not, I will be completely sanctified if I struggle through this life. No, I'll be completely sanctified because he who has called me is faithful. He said he'll do it. He will do it. So our, our confidence is in the promises of God and the fact that he is a faithful God who keeps his word and will fulfil uh, what he's promised. But I wonder how often do we pray like that for ourselves and for one another? Um, That's what Paul prayed for the Thessalonian believers. Finally, what Paul requests of them, uh, verses 25 to 28. He says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we really have uh, three requests there. Uh, They are things that he wants them to do for him. The first request is brothers pray for us. That's always a, a good request, isn't it? Brothers pray for us. If the Apostle Paul needed uh, his fellow believers to pray for him, then we certainly do, don't we? So if we, if, we, um, if we need prayer, let's not hesitate to ask our brothers and sisters to pray for us. Second request, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, this doesn't mean that whenever we meet a brother or sisters in Christ, we are to plant a great sloppy smacker on them. It doesn't mean to say you're saying, ah, Christian, and go all French. That is not what, uh, that's not what Paul is, is saying here uh, at all. We need to recognise that this isn't an instruction about what we should do. No, it's a request on Paul's behalf. He's really saying to them, give all the brothers a kiss from me. It means make sure that all the brothers know that I send my love. And he refers to it as a holy kiss because it's his love in Christ. So next Sunday's meeting shouldn't be delayed while we wait for all the kissing to stop. And you don't need to agonise over whether or not you can bring yourself to kiss a certain person. Okay, it's not a problem. Um, Having said all that, if you want to kiss someone as a a sign of your love for them in Christ, that's fine too. But uh, don't feel that that, that there's an obligation here for for Christians to be uh, non-stop kissers. That's not what it's saying uh, at all. But it is nonetheless challenging to us, isn't it? 
because um, we've said that as the body of Christ, we're a, we're a family. And we need to ask ourselves, how much love and affection do we have for one another? And how well do we show that love and affection? How warmly do we express it? Not necessarily by kissing, but it should be there and it should be evident. So that's, that's challenging. The third request was, have this letter read to all the brothers. And this isn't just Paul saying, give the brothers my love and let them read this letter. No, you see there's a real urgency and a real serious about, uh, about this request because he said, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The, the fact is that this letter was not so much, uh, it was so much more than, than a, a friendly missive expressing his love for them. It was the word of God. It, it was uh, addressing their spiritual needs. It was for their growth and encouragement. So uh, although that request was specifically addressed to the Thessalonian church, um, really a similar urgent uh, requirement applies to all churches, doesn't it? You know, he could just as well have said, I put you under oath before the Lord to have not only this letter, but all of the word of God read to all the brothers. That, that should be something that, that we, we recognise the need of. And, and that's why we, we value and emphasise the preaching of God's word. We need it. It's for our spiritual good. And then finally, he brings the whole letter to a succinct but powerful conclusion by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. i just close with a, another quote from John Stott. He said, if a local church is to become a gospel church, it must not only receive the gospel and pass it on, but also embody it in a community life of mutual love. Nothing but the grace of Christ can accomplish this. So may we look to the Lord to, to work these things in us so that we can be that uh, effective gospel church.